Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live! <laughs> kind of. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw, of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled at an engineering conference <laughs> in a secret bunker. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's not Howard's microphone this week. <laughs> yours, yours isn't even on this week. <laughs> Very easy. There we go. True crime uncensored, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, mom and dad, kids of all ages. Produced. No. <laughs> the blame goes. To no, 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 no. No? No, don't. No. No, okay. please don't. Okay. Produced by somebody. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the yes, man over there are. is yeah. Howard Lapidus. And I am that too. Manager to the star. Z. Do you still have one besides me? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so do I, for your yeah, sake. Thank you. Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, yeah, no. now knows everything about Frank C. Gerardo's life. Frank, that's what hey. he does indeed. It all Frank. fits on one page <laughs> with <laughs> a lot of pictures. <laughs> that's right. I just took out, look at this. Yeah. You you actually this is your research? <laughs> and for the audience, it is one page, honest to God, and half three quarters of the page. It's, 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 it's pictures. pictures. Yeah. There's so not a picture of that cute little Puerto Rican hockey. Out, the, 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 you left out the best picture, me and the speedo. Oh God. <laughs> but that, but that's all right. It's I mean, not here It's covered everything yeah. from pro football to O. J. Simpson's murder. Isn't that still pro football? <laughs> it, it, it could is. be, yeah. yeah. I didn't know he was murdered. Who, okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, we got that covered. Who's our next guest? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, that was a long time ago. We, well. we thought we'd do a career retrospective well, that, on you. Is that good? Because <laughs> oh, you know, because we, you know, you and I have written two books together. Is that all? And uh, God, it seems like we've done third, so much more than that. Third one's coming up eventually. You know, and it's it, it's hard to no, please interrupt you, but. He's all too familiar, so you really haven't introduced him to the audience. Oh, audience, this is uh, Thank Frank. Burrow, <laughs> <coughs> as usual, you're nuts. Yeah, well, that's... Well, no, let's do it right. Okay. All right. Uh, Frank C. Gerardo Jr. is a uh, brilliant fellow. He uh, writes brilliant books and uh, has a distinguished career, not only as a journalist, but as a part-time rock and roll star. <laughs> <laughs> At <laughs> bar mitzvahs, funerals, and divorces. Yeah, a lot of bars. We, a lot of we, bars. Oh, yeah. Well, the band was Thunderheart. Still is Thunderheart. Thunderheart. Are you still, play, still playing the band? Yeah, still play. Yeah. And it's how many years? It's. Uh, I've been doing this for, um, for a long time. Thunderheart's been together probably 15 years. Now, we'll get we'll get back to the real topic. Yeah. That, but I'm fascinated by this. So are you doing covers? or what, what All doing? covers. We're a bar band. We don't do... Uh, we do covers, but we don't play them in the style of the artist. We add our own little stuff. Kind of like Bob Dylan when but, he does but, his stuff. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan doesn't do them in his own style. Look, yeah. all of and us... One of the guys in the band is a, is a pretty well-known dude. He was in Breaking Bad, uh, Dean Norris. He's our singer. So that helps bring people out. Um, we play in bars, and you know, I mean, we're a good, we're a good, we're actually we're a great bar band. And what do you, what do you play? I play lead guitar. Lead guitar. Yeah. Listen to you. Yeah. Man, oh man. Yeah. But, and you know, I mean, we play the Stones, and we'll play Steve Miller and Bad Company, which we right. were listening to on the radio here a little bit yeah. earlier. And I mean, you go. I through actually the whole sang with Steve Miller, so they're on you. Cool. Yeah. That's our. That's awesome. That's a true story, but we'll keep going. Yeah. yeah he also punched Ian Hunter in the face. I did do that. Really? Oh, yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) You're not the bot. Boom. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, But it's a lot of fun. Uh, Being in a bar, um, you know, there was a time when we were playing four or five gigs in a weekend. Really? and making and it was all cash money, yeah, you know. Of course. Um, so we were taking home a lot of Philly's cash. Knowing he has not paid an ounce of tax ever. <laughs> Attention, IRS. But, but, well, that's okay. Uh, IRS is closed on the weekend. And, and for a while there, we had a pretty good rider in the in a, whenever we do a contract, it would be you know cash plus whatever we could take from behind the bar. There you go. And uh, it's the it, Chuck that included right. the waitresses. It, it, Chuck, Chuck had that same rider. Did he? That's I mean, it's the way to do it. Until you take too much of their uh, Jack Daniel single barrel, and they tell you not to come back. <laughs> Chuck would show up. You'd have three, four guys. You'd have four guys there to play behind him that mm-hmm. he never knew, <laughs> and he'd show up ten minutes before the show, yep. and he would want his cash. Oh yeah, he won't go on without that would cash. Go on without the cash. I don't cash, cash. You, oh, no, I'm neither did I. I mean, the guy came from the day, so he yeah. knew, you know. And then the, <laughs> there was one guy that said, uh, "Chuck, can we rehearse a little bit?" And he goes, "If you can't play a Chuck Berry song." Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, you guys know Lucille? If you know that one, you know them all. Get out of here. Yeah, my awesome. buddy Bill Straub was in Chuck Berry's, several of Chuck Berry's backup bands. Really? And that's how it worked. He's I a, heard one time Keith Richards showed up to try to oh, be in the... Oh, well, there's a movie about that. Yeah. Called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. And it, I love it. Uh, the, the concept was Keith Richards saw Chuck Berry live and went, this is crap. You know, uh, he's great, but the, they're just loose as hell. Band, yeah. And so he said, if we got a dynamite band, I mean, just like the top people, rehearse the hell of us, so it was as tight as can be, it would be incredible. So they do it. They get a hard time getting Chuck to rehearse, but they got it down there tight, right? First song, Chuck comes out in about few bars into it, changes the key, <laughs> totally throws them off, and they're panicking. They don't know what to do, and he's having the time of his life. And he says, this is the way rock and roll is supposed to be. It's supposed to be unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, anyway, that was a sidetrack, but I, I love doing that, and thanks for pointing it out. So what's some of the uh, hang on, hang on, Mark. The we're worst done, bars. Yeah, we're not, we're, yeah good. Keep okay, going. some of the worst bars. This yet. Okay, actually, I could, there's two of them. One that we played in, this was years ago, is called the OK Corral. It was in San Jacinto, California, um, out at the end of uh, what's called the Palms to Pines Highway. Ooh. Um, we're playing, we, I think we had a two-night stand there, a Saturday and a Sunday night, uh, or Friday and a Saturday night. We're there on a Saturday. Uh, there's a bunch of commotion in the back of the bar, and this guy comes running through naked, and five <laughs> seconds later, three cops are behind. <laughs> and they're naked too. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they come, they come running through. They go out the side door. There's helicopters all over the place. And place, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, it was really, you know, that was a fun one. The, <laughs> yeah, I would times, imagine. We'd see, you know, we play. It was a place called the Pond. All these places have Western themes. There's a place called the Ponderosa. Um, that's in Sun City, California. Uh, we're playing there, and a fight breaks out, like on the dance floor. And uh, I just remember uh, Dean and I were, you know, playing. I think we we're playing something, Leonard Skinner. And uh, these guys, this fight starts coming this way, right? So, so we just we just take two steps back, keep playing. <laughs> you know, don't hit the PA equipment and don't touch the microphones, and it's all good. It reminds me of a roadhouse with a chicken wire in front of yeah, the band. I, I, you know, I mean, you'd see st- stuff like that. I don't remember. There's one place we played where uh, these two girls got into it over something, and one hit another one over the head with a bottle, 
And uh, you well, know, that's when a you could kill somebody I, I, with that, I used to dream of nights like that. Yeah, I mean, it, I would always hope that would happen. It was, I mean, these are crazy places. The thing is, now when you see somebody get hit with a bottle in the movie, it's you know, it's kind of like whatever. But when it happens in real life, man, mm. that but the bottle's heavy, it breaks. There's blood everywhere, and it's yeah, it's a it's was a nasty a situation. It yeah, the movies are just where it goes. Yeah, yeah, oh, breakaway glass. Yeah, this was a. Uh, I, that might have been at the Ponderosa also. The, the Ponderosa was quite the place. The OK Corral was the worst of that place. It, it ended up burning down. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> lightning. I say, yeah. <laughs> Terrible fire you're having next Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, yeah, we played uh, our pictures on the wall at a place called Chappies and Hemet. Um, oh, tell about your exciting adventures of playing the Hard Rock Hotel. Oh, in, in Palm Vegas. Springs. Oh, in Palm Springs. Well, yeah. this, so I don't I don't know which hotel it was. This is the problem. Uh, but they they we played at a casino there, and they put us up in uh, in another hotel. And not they, theirs. They, not theirs. <laughs> oh, it's a five dollar <laughs> night. That's where the band stays. No, no, no. They put us up in a nice hotel. They is put that, us up in the true? Hyatt, and we had really? you know yeah they gave us rooms and everything. Oh, there was there was larceny involved. I, I don't know. Yeah. Through, as long as there was cash involved. Fine. And that and like Chuck Berry, we we never got paid up front, but man. It, you have to get you play in a, a bar band you got to get paid and, and it's you, it, and we all have to be there when the money's handed out yeah if, even if it's just to intimidate the the bartender into turning it over you know well, um, uh howard were you here when uh uh, Hank, you know, the the guy who was in the Three Days of the Condor, you know, the postman who uh, tries to kill. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, he's also a, a comic, you know, and he goes to get paid at the club, and uh, everyone's getting paid in cash, and they're giving him a check. <laughs> no, no. And, and he goes, goes, no, no, they go, Hank, take the check. He goes, but no, everyone's getting, take the check. He takes the check. The cash bounced. It was counterfeit. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that, that, that's funny. That's funny. That is. That's now, good. Having owned many a comedy club in, in my day and paying out many, many dollars in cash, uh, I would do whatever I could do to make sure everybody was paid properly and happy and went on and entertained. See. Because otherwise, we're out of business. <laughs> <laughs> you're the guy we want. I mean, you're the guy we, that you know anybody you want to play for, you want to perform for, because right. you know that you're going to have that kind of a relationship and it's going to work out. That's why when I would hire people to do a voiceover work for producing commercials, same thing with voiceover talent. They're always making the assumption they're not going to get paid. You know, because you got like 30 days, whatever after you turn in the after contract. I would pay them before. They perform. We're so far <laughs> off, off, but I've, there's one yeah, story I've got to tell. Uh, yeah. I was, I was, uh, there's a, uh, there was a blues duo years ago. They're long gone now. It's called Sonny Terry and Brownie uh, McGee. Love those guys. Okay. So, yeah. So you know. Yep. Okay. So I, I was in Canada, and I would present them across Canada because they had that little pocket, pocket audience, and I'd get a thousand people. I bet. No problem. The deal was, is the first time I did them was in Ottawa, and, and I called their person, and I said, I've got them booked in the Park Hotel next to the river. They'll love it. And she goes, oh, well, wait a minute. Where are you going to put Brownie? I said, what are you talking about? Well, no, they don't stay in the same hotel. Said, What's this? I don't understand. It's rooms? No. They have not talked in 27 years. I said, you're going to tell me Sonny Terry in front of me, one of the great blues acts of all time, has not talked in 27 years. And she goes, that's right. You have to be in separate hotels, and you pay them separately. 
Wow. It was twenty five hundred bucks. I'd already paid. I'd already paid twelve hundred, so I owed them cash. Twelve, uh, twelve, uh, twelve, uh, twelve fifty, and you know, and I was to pay Brownie McGee, who was 1,000% blind. He was 1,000%. 1,000%. Yeah. Not There's no hindsight. 1,000% <laughs> blind. Okay. So, so I watch, I'm all, and I'm watching the show, and I realize they haven't, I know, they haven't spoken in 27 years, and watched, it was amazing. They talked through their instruments, and they're playing. Wow. There was, you could see there was a conversation going on. It was just, it was such a, they're so good. Yeah, I've, i so good. Every record of theirs that I've ever heard, you listen to it and you go, you know, why wasn't this covered more? Why didn't oh, they get I, more play? Or, uh, I'm here to tell you. Yeah, so, end of the night, I find Brown and McGee. And I go, how are these other guys? You know, I'm a 27 year old kid. I'm here to pay you. And I've got the cash. And he puts his hand out and he says, all right, count it out. The man is blind, <laughs> and I and I had hundred dollar bills. I count out twelve hundred, and then I, and then I tell him fifty. He puts it in his pocket, and I go, Brownie, how do you know that I just gave you twelve hundred and fifty dollars? He said, I've been doing this a long time, son. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I don't want to hear the guy. He, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't want to lie to that guy. He's no. a voice stress analyzer. No, no, these guys, you know, I mean, that, he's got the ears of gold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you, and you know, I mean, so uh, you know, people will try to rip you off. Oh. And, and I mean, all the time. Uh, they want you to play for free. We, we were, you know, when we got started, Dean, his, um, his dad had done a bunch of, he was a bar singer in Michigan and Indiana and, you know, kind of in the Midwest. And, like, we just, he, Dean comes in, his dad comes in, and he goes, look, you guys, you, you get you play, you get paid. There's just there's no in between. And uh, once we set that up early with people, man, you know, it's good. I mean, I was in that business a long time and did big shows, but I had t two things, big or small, pay and have the best food. <laughs> yeah. That the makes a big difference. Yeah. The best That's food. Absolutely. First of all, I, I realized I have to eat it. I'm there. <laughs> so I want good food there. And it cost me another 10%, and I've got the uh, best food. And everybody and, and, appreciates and talk about it. it. Yeah, hell yeah, you talk about it. You yeah. go, oh, I want to go back Same there. thing on movie sets. You want craft services to be... Oh, to be great. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, people start bitching about everything. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie got fingered. Had the best Oh, I figured had, had something there had to be good. Well, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we uh, talk to... Uh, to Frank about yeah, so that's that's my part-time job. <laughs> my, What's the largest uh, venue? We're done. You, just, you just said it. We're done. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, uh, I the largest venue. I don't know. The, uh, maybe the Winchester Inn. I don't know. These the guys that well, the I Hard Rock's had, what? the guys in the band. Well, the Hard that Rock was, would seat about uh, what 150. No, probably. I don't no. know. Hard Rock's are. But it wasn't the. It, well, it's the smaller room. It's a. It's not even a real. It's a fake. It's a casino. Yeah. I don't know. What, I well, I'm thinking of the small room at the Hard Rock in Vegas where I saw, uh, you know, the Reverend, you know, Horton Heat. Yeah. And that was about 150 people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we most places we played were bars. So, you know. Perform live before an acre of drunks. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I tell you, I can tell you the OK Corral one time, there was only like 10 people there, and we put on a blistering fucking hot show. That's the thing is you got to put on the same show whether there's five people there or yep. 500. Yeah. No kidding. You yeah. have to create tar water. Ask, great, a, ask a comedian about that. Great, great guitarist. Uh, he said he learned a long time ago that if you think you played like crap and you're really upset 
and some fan comes up to you and says, wow, man, you were great tonight. Don't contradict him. <laughs> Don't what? tell him. What possible reason would, would somebody do that? But people do that, I guess. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I'd always say, yeah, great. Buy me a drink. <laughs> Take me home. <laughs> well, we'll get back to Frank C. Gerardo Jr. and hear about his dynamic career and how he became a legend in true crime. Kagan, the gay guy from Outlaw Radio. If you own a cell phone, and I know you do because you probably got Grinder on there, but it's time for you to add another app. That app would be for Outlaw Radio through the courtesy of RadioLoyalty.com. My suggestion is that you upload that app for free, mind you. Yes, totally free app. In order to be able to listen to us, the Demons of Decadence, every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 6 Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Daylight Time. And you'll have the opportunity to listen to us smoke, drink, and interrupt each other, which we do a really good job of doing. So once again, RadioLoyalty.com to pick up your free app of Outlaw Radio. Once again, this is Frank. So get off a grinder and get on to Outlaw. Nice. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear taking time out of my busy schedule to tell you to buy all my books. And the great thing about if you buy uh, my most recent books, you're also supporting the career of Frank C. Gerardo Jr. Because uh, Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD, was written with Frank and Ken Urell, who was the second most corrupt cop in the history of the NYPD, they say. Although, I, there might be a couple worse ones back in the 1800s, but contemporarily speaking, he really screwed up. <laughs> oh, also, A Taste for Murder by uh, Frank C. Gerardo and some other guy uh, is uh, just was dandy book. I really enjoyed it. Especially enjoyed the royalty checks that came in the mail. <laughs> and then, one of our great victories is Manling Williams' Deadly Sins, a two-star reviewed book with checks in the mail. <laughs> hey, but let me tell you about that. I'm going to yeah. be doing a TV show for somebody, Investigation Discovery, or one of these channels. From England? On, on that, yeah. Yeah, they yeah, called Miriam me too, yeah. Fitzgerald. And uh, they want to do, you know, they're doing, um, they're doing this uh, story again, Manling Williams. This is a woman who murdered her husband and her two young children. Uh, she's, she suffocated her kids and then cut her husband up with a samurai sword. 93 or 97 whacks with that sword and then sat down and wrote him a suicide note. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's yeah, going to believe that? So, Back to so, True Crime Uncensored. That's right. With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Thank you. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. We got tight production here. <laughs> so why would, honest to God, why would some, what was in her head? Did you find that out? Yeah, well, what was in her head is she had a lover on the side. She yeah, okay. Wanted, she wanted to be with the guy. Okay. And, you know, she didn't have the brain power to figure out, like, maybe you get a divorce, leave the kids with your husband. Even stupid people do that. I, 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 I mean, she story. really, you know, who knows? I mean, it, with her, she... She just was convinced that the only way she could be with this guy she wanted to be with was killing her husband and knocking off the babies. 
and it, it's a horrible thing. And the, you know, the the really, uh, first of all, it's just you know sad on the prima facie, right? Just the idea of it. But the devastation that is left behind for the the family of these people that are no longer with us is is, you know, it's resonating even now, ten years later, and. Um, it's a I, lifetime. Yeah, oh, well, sure. there's no way you can and shake it, no matter no, what side of the family. No possible way. No, it's just it's just horrible. And you know, sweet innocent little kids, and uh, you know, a, a well-meaning but kind of doofusy dad. Uh, well, I'm glad he's gone. But, 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 but no, 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 you're no. not. No, no, no. no, no. I'm kidding, yeah, no. and I shouldn't be. Yeah, his 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 mom is the sweetest, nicest lady. And, uh, you know, I mean, she just really is, is devastated. It's one of the things, by the way. It's Good joke, Howard. It's, yeah. <laughs> sometimes they work, Matt, and sometimes <laughs> they don't. Um, it, this is why, you know, I like true crime is because you get to you get to the real human experience of stuff like this. And you can, uh, you know, you can try to figure out why somebody would do something like this. You can analyze it and you can write about it and you can get into the gory details and the, the other thing is, um, is a lot of these stories, is Betrayal in Blue, the book that Burl and I uh, wrote this year uh, with Ken Urell, it, it, you also get the history, you know, the time and place, right? That, that true crime, you know, is like a snapshot, this crime scene, and then that snapshot exists in a world that, you know, for, for better or worse, uh, has all these attendant memories, hit songs, uh, what the news was of the day, you know, and why these things happen. I'm working on a, a project right now about the Grim Sleeper, a serial killer that was roaming uh, L.A., South L.A., killing black prostitutes in the 80s. And um, if you look at just that time, the you know, what was happening, then it really puts the crimes in context. They don't just exist as these little, like, isolated uh, incidents. Yeah. What right? in that one, what... What was the time like? And then how does how do you lay the murder over the murders over that? So so I actually started out with this guy. I looked at um, his youth, and um, the co-writer on this uh, particular piece interviewed the serial killer while he was awaiting trial. And he's growing up in Los Angeles pre Watts riots, and there's this uh, there's this milieu of people moving here from the south of heavy amount of discrimination and segregation in L.A., even though it was seen as a progressive city. And um, the subsequent riot and all these problems that were exposed with the infrastructure of the city, the policing, the education system, uh, housing problems, on and on and on, right? So now you, you follow this guy's life like a little chain of events that goes from, you know, birth through the Watts riots, through he goes in the army, he comes back, and he's living in L.A., and he's living the experience of a lot of other Angelinos except for one thing. He's got this weird desire to kill hookers. And, um, and, and, the, and the time and the place that... So at, in the 80s, there was a lot of cocaine going around in South L.A., a lot of prostitution, uh, strawberries, they called them, girls that would sell their, their bodies to get crack. And the police department wasn't really focused on, you know, black murders. Uh, in fact, they had a designation uh, at that time that they would, something like no human involved, and they would yeah. write it on the report, NHI. NHI. Um, and it, it caused them not to investigate it. And this, I, this fascinated me. One of the first murders that he's charged with is a, 
is the murder of a woman named Deborah Jackson. She was shot to death and dumped in an alley on August the 10th, 1985. If you look at the LA Times edition from that same day, there's a huge story on the front page about a serial killer plaguing Los Angeles. It's the Night Stalker. And you, you think about all the resources that went into finding the Night Stalker, right? I mean, I mean, you well, know, this guy is doing and his this business. guy is doing his business at the same time and killing people, and he gets away with it for you know decades, um, really until technology sort of technology and sociology kind of forced the police department to re-examine the way they looked at stuff in South Los Angeles. When did, when did the media catch up to this guy? Well, so the media caught up to this guy through a reporter at the LA Weekly named uh, Christine Pelisek. And somehow she found out about a secret investigation going on in the uh, Los Angeles Police Department that was focused on what appeared to be serial killings. There was a group of killings in the 80s and then a group of killings that started in 2000 and went from to about 2007. And they had all these similarities. The biggest similarity was that each victim had been shot with a 25 automatic and dumped in a very small area of South Los Angeles around Western Avenue. And the cops in 2000 go, this looks a lot like stuff we were looking at way back in the 80s. Let's examine it, pull up all these cases. And they go, wow, we've got this serial killer, and he hasn't been killing for 10 years. What the heck's going on? So that's how he got his name, The Grim Sleeper. Um, as the media put pressure on it through the LA Weekly, uh, the police department ramped up its investigation. They kind of narrowed it down to who it might be. They realized this guy had never been um, t DNA tested. He'd been arrested, but, you know, they do these DNA tests when they arrest you, and they'd never done it with him. They, however, arrested his son. And um, when they were running DNA checks, they got this close match. There's a name for it. I don't, it's a technical name. But so what they do is they go, oh, we got a close match. This is a, there's a male relative of this guy that we've arrested is the serial killer we're looking for. So they got to get his DNA. And they don't know how to do it until they figure out if they, they follow him to a restaurant they put their own servers in the restaurant, feed him, and then take his food away. They did it with actually a piece of pizza. They extract his DNA off the pizza, and then they match it to all these cases, these recent cases, and a bunch of cases back in the 80s, and they go, this is our guy. What was he doing those 10 years off? Probably killing. He, um, he, so he was a garbage man. Um, he was really familiar with his neighborhood. And he was able to dispose of bodies pretty well. Um, and he, although I, I don't know, the, I can't remember the exact number. Let's say it's 12 homicides that he was charged with. I think he probably did a lot more. And the weird thing is, and I haven't even gotten into this really in the research part of it, but at the time that he was down there killing prostitutes in South Los Angeles, there was two or three other serial killers also working the same tracks. Well, they, they coordinate their schedules? They, you know, the thing is, is that there was just so much prostitution, you know, on Western and Figueroa and, you know, Manchester over by the airport um, that the, you know, the police kind of looked the other way. It's, 
tolerance. The police looking the other way fascinates me. Tell me more about that. I wish I knew more about it. Yeah. I, I assumed that um, there's, you know, there's some element of policing where you go, okay, you know, we got to focus on crimes yeah. where there's a victim, where there's a victim, right? And traditionally, prostitution has been looked at as a victimless crime. If you look at policing now, they don't look at it that way. They call it trafficking, sex trafficking. Uh, they have all these names for it, and they they look at it now as like, oh, these women are actually victims, and um, you know, they're it, it's not a victimless crime, and it's it, the whole it, approach to it is so much different. Exactly. I mean, whatever they do for a living, legal, illegal, moral, immoral, we're talking about human beings. And that, I think that. So I think that if you go back 25, 30 years, it was an objectification of the victim. Like that's ah, a hooker. Oh, you know, they, and that even happened. There was in Canada. The judge finally lost his job, but these two guys decided it would be fun to kill somebody, and so they they got a, a woman who was working as a prostitute, and they brutally murdered her. And the judge said, "Well, it's okay, pretty much, because for what she did for a living, and so I'll just give you probation or whatever it was." And of course, people were outraged because I mean that's just horrifying that you know it's okay to kill her because that's what she does for a living. Well, in uh, heck, all the disc jockeys I know would be dead by now. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> you uh, also have what's called containment policies. That is, if you if we can contain all the prostitution and the drug dealing to this neighborhood, and it doesn't spread, fine. That, that's the wire. If you ever watch the show The Wire, uh, they have Hamsterdam where they you know they contain all the drug dealing in the right. prostitution. And, they, and then what they do is they set up kind of listening posts and they watch everybody. They know who all the dealers are. They know who's doing what. But as long as it doesn't move past this intersection, it's fine. If you do, you're in big trouble. But it's... It, it, what do they mean by it's fine? Because it, it. it's all in one place. They can... I think it goes back to that NHI designation, right? It's fine to them because they don't believe there's really, you know, human-valued lives involved in this, right? That's the reason for the Black if, Lives if Matter if, movement, if, yeah. Which is, you know, exactly right. You know, um, and in fact, Black Lives Matter in some way sprang out of this serial killings in South Los Angeles because there's a whole, there's a whole story about the community of women who stood up in the 80s and said... Hey, what what's happening with our daughters and our sisters and our mothers, and getting no answers and no responses? The Los Angeles Police Department, they'll say, look, you know, in the '80s we set up the Southside Slayer Task Force and we were looking at this stuff. We just didn't have the clues, but they did. And in fact, I remember, I forget this. A homicide detective once told me that if you're investigating a serial killing, you don't really investigate the killings; you investigate the near misses. You want to look for the case that that's a lot like your killing, except the victim survived. Well, it turns out that in the in the Grim Sleeper case, there's a victim way back in 1988 who survived. She was uh, he he picked her up, uh, he you know shot her, and uh, she was able to get away and go to the police and say, "This man picked me up." He drove me around. He took me to a neighborhood. This neighborhood was his neighborhood across the street from his house. And they just didn't follow up on it. it, it it's really just... Is it... 
do we have this is a tough question to ask but do we have an inferior police department for the size of the city that is it's a tough question to answer because in some ways uh you know i think people would say that the los angeles police department uh, is inferior but i think in a lot of ways you can say it's a superior police department you know they they have tons of technology uh, they have, you know, some of the most dedicated and trained officers of any police department in the United States. Uh, they have, there's a lot of hardworking men and women who, you know, practice their trade with, with honor and discipline and all those things, right? Um, but you have this whole political element of the Los Angeles Police Department that, you know, prevents good law enforcement sometimes from actually taking place. Uh, in what way? What, what well... I mean, if if you live up in the valley, you know, uh, let's say you live in Woodland Hills, and you, three of your neighbors' cars have been broken into, I, I'm going to guess that if you call down to the, you know, the, the the Mission Police Station or whichever one handles that 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 area, that you're going to get, you know, a coordinated, proactive response to the car break-in. But you know, I would argue that if you live in Boyle Heights or if you live down in Watts. And the same thing happens that, that you don't get that that same sort of response. You get, well, you know. What do you expect? Uh, you, you live down here. Yeah. Is is the police department uh, underpopulated? Well, that they so you know statistically, I don't know the numbers, but they they have said in the past that the Los Angeles Police Department needs more officers. That you know, if you look at the staffing levels for L.A. compared to any other city of its size, L.A.'s staffing levels are pretty pretty low. Um, and I imagine that the police chief and the union and everybody else that's a member of the Los Angeles Police Department would love to see more cops on the street. But would it? But would that be effective? I don't know. I mean, you, every every other profession in the world is shrinking, right? Uh, you know, because of automation, because of technology, because of uh, science and all this. So, I mean, how does that affect policing? In some ways, with video and. You don't like you know you think about like a a robbery. Twenty five thirty years ago, a guy would walk into a Seven Eleven, rob the place, grab some dough and split right. And it but now guy walks into a place, robs it. There's cameras out in the in the store, cameras outside. There's license plate reading technology. There's all these other like uh, that doesn't change the requirement of the number of people involved. It just makes catching the perp a little easier. Well, but, I, I, I'm gonna say. I watch the news every night, and I see these robberies like they're sitcoms. I mean, I mean, you can yeah. see the face. Yeah, how do these guys? Yeah, do they not know that this is going on now, and they still go in and rob these? Well, places? I think these what you're talking about is a problem of TV news, they, yeah. though. Well, I, TV news—that's another story. TV right. news is BS because right. because they get video, and they're going to show you video. You know, they're not going to they if they don't have video, they're not going to show it to you. That's just, that's the nature of TV well, news. because they've got to put a show on. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's, that's what, what it is. is. If it it's, bleeds, it bleeds. It's entertainment. <laughs> yeah. My, my experience four years with the LAPD during the Rampart scandal, um, everyone was of the highest uh, caliber, you know, uh, and dedicated and concerned. Except for Raphael, what's his face? Well, I was, I was on the research end, and uh -huh. I was working with the... the Officers whose horrible job was to catch them and prosecute. Yeah, well, and that's Boy, a that's a horrible that. job. I mean, in Betrayal in Blue, uh, you know, we look at a, a, a dirty 
cop and actually a group of dirty cops uh, who are operating probably with within the confines of the department and the department brass knows that they're there but they don't necessarily want to expose them because then it exposes the department to you know charges of corruption and all yeah, we don't politics. need a scandal let them keep doing it right because what happens with a scandal is then you get political oversight you know and no police department wants political oversight and it's probably for the reasons that you know we can posit you know by thinking about it it's like well you know if you have political oversight Maybe you're not going to do the kind of policing that you need to do to be effective. Um, we can have a philosophical argument about it all the time. Uh, but uh, the, if you ever really want to, I think Betrayal in Blue is one of the best looks at the inner workings of police departments um, that, that I've certainly uh, read Never or read, written. Ever wrote. <laughs> um, but it's because of Ken. You know, Ken, it, Ken gives us, Ken Urell, the, who's a New York police officer who, you know, was involved in this drug dealing scam, scheme, scam with other officers. I mean, just lays it all out. This is how, this is how we get more money for overtime. You know, this is how we, we handle calls that we don't want to handle. This is what we do if, there, if an officer gets hurt. This is how we make money. This is how we rob people. I mean, boom, boom, boom. You can go through it. It's like a Bible for bad policing. Oh, and, and uh, if you I, want to see I, that acted out in real life, go to uh, Santa Clarita. Yeah, well, I mean, you where the sheriff's department. Oh, it's it's insane. Yeah. Go on Yelp and read the story. <laughs> well, I mean, there's you know, I had a guy tell me that. Uh, where was it, Acton or Lancaster or something? He was he read the book and he told me he goes, yeah, I lived up in the in the high desert there in uh, in Lancaster and they had their own police department and they were doing all this stuff. They were, they would go into drug dealers' homes and snatch everything. And mm -hmm. here it's a little more quiet, right? You don't have the New York Post like monitoring everything that happens. But that poli particular police department got shut down for doing this same kind of stuff. How do you cover up not wanting to go on a call? Like you said in that list of things that, uh, that he was talking well, about. Well, so so let so here's how Ken would talk would say it. Like, um, let's say there's a call at the very end of your shift, and you get it. But there's another guy on your shift who really needs overtime. Maybe he's got a baby or, you know, a baby mama that he's got to take care of. So you get out to the call and you you know you handle all the preliminary stuff, but you throw the overtime to the other guy and make him the lead officer on the case, so that you can go home and he gets the OT. I mean that's the simplest way to describe and the, it. Yeah, the, the other way, the inverse of it, and this happened Thanksgiving, where of course they get more money because it's a holiday. My uh, daughter's boyfriend, or they're out getting a cup of coffee or something. They got the truck parked, and he's walking across the street. And all of a sudden, this cop yells at him, stop, stop where you are. Get on the median. He gets on the median. Now where's he supposed to go? So he starts walking down the median. And the cop turns to his partner with a big smile and says, call in for overtime. <laughs> and that's what the whole thing was about. It was like five minutes to five. And they actually put a gun right in, uh, right in his face. And it was all about him walking across the street so they could get they the could overtime. Get overtime. Yeah. Yeah, never. So uh, the the moral of this story is don't jaywalk around five p.m. Yeah, that's right. Do it at four forty-five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a real racket. The interesting thing is, if you go on the LAPD website, they have a section that shows whether or not they have been in compliance with the regulations that came down on them because of the Rampart scandal. Right. Not yet. 
Well, I mean, and, and Charlie, Charlie Beck uh, is probably the guy that you don't want leading that effort. He, I think that he's so much a part, so ingrained into the counter tradition of the Los Angeles Police Department, the whole, you know, back in the day, Daryl Gates, that, that LAPD, that, you know, he's never going to lead reform. And uh, him and Garcetti together... Mayor Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, you know, they would rather not have to deal with this kind of stuff because they want the Olympics here. And they're going to do what they're going to paint this pretty picture about L.A., whatever it takes to make sure that the Olympic Games are here in 2024. Kind of like uh, down in Brazil or whatever, where they rounded yeah, up all the child hookers. It, and, yep, <laughs> move them into a safe spot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all you kids stay over here. Like, watch, watch what's happening with the homeless right now. You know, you see, like, the, you know, we have this explosion of homelessness and the, this bond issue that's going to reportedly take care of it. But, you know, you look at certain places. A, a good example is Alvarado under the 101 freeway. There's, you know that spot? Yeah. There's, oh, very well. Okay, there's 40 or, 50, you know, 50 people living there constantly, right? Maybe more. And you'll see, like, you go down there day after day after day, right? When people, 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 boom, and then it's all cleaned up. Well, you know, that's the day that... The Olympic Committee, I swear, you read it. That's the day the Olympic Committee is visiting L.A. And then, you know, three days later, they're all back. True. Where do they go? It's 100% true. Yeah. They, yeah. they uh, who knows where they go? People Now, people, I live in Pasadena. And the, the gold line goes from Union Station to, you know, Pasadena, right? And there's times when you see an influx of homeless people just getting up off the gold line, and boom, they show up in Pasadena, they'll be there for a couple of weeks and they're gone and they're back down you know in LA it's just there's, well, a, there's like it's like it's, 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 you're aware it's of what shell, happened it's a uh, shell game a few years ago where someone finally stepped in and said this you can't do this is they were rounding up people on the street doesn't have to do anything wrong just round you up if you're homeless put you in jail without charges and then ship you off to somewhere else yeah, city. yeah they would, they would put, they I mean would, this is totally illegal <laughs> I mean, in you're case wrong. you haven't figured it out. <laughs> you're wrong. It's not totally illegal. It is illegal to, no, to arrest not. people with no it, charges. No, no. It's illegal to loiter. That's a law. What are they doing? What happened to the right of free assembly? That is not an oh, assembly. Not. <laughs> That's not an assembly. Seriously, get a grip. <laughs> a right to assembly. It's so full of crap. Walla Washington, where I come from. Walla Walla, yeah. yeah. That's I'll, I'll tell you how it works there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. If, you got a, if we're hanging out on the corner, the three of us, and we're talking about whatever we're talking about, where's the three guys hanging out on the corner talking? If it's three Hispanic guys, it's suspected gang activity. If it's three black guys, it's a crime wave. And I'm not exactly, I mean, this is actually how it worked there. Uh, and it to, to the point where they had to send the Department of Justice sent in a guy uh, from Washington, D.C. to sit down with the judges and the cops and say, you're skating on around the yeah, you can't do, I mean, shaky end of the ice flow here, kids. You know? I mean, you know, that's the genesis of consent decrees like the one LAPD operates under is, you know, it, it's, uh, it's this whole cultural idea that you know, three Hispanic guys or three black guys or three Chinese guys are up are up to no good just by the nature of them being there. And, you know, we all know that that's BS. However, I'm sorry, 150, 200 people camped out on 7th Street, you know, is not a peaceful assembly. Uh, you know, it's, 
it, there's I don't know we don't I don't think any of us know what the solution is. We probably should you know mental health services or la I mean there's like this whole probably dim sum menu of things that we could, <laughs> we, could say, we could say that you know that people need, but uh, you know it's ridiculous to uh, to to let it go the way that we let it go and to play this shell game with shifting people from L.A. to Pasadena to Monrovia out to the valley like i guarantee i'll bet that these streets out here if there were more services that you'd see more homelessness uh tell you the great place to be homeless although it's not great to be homeless anywhere having been that way temporarily <laughs> a few years ago uh is there's a lot of homeless people in santa monica oh yeah but uh, there's oh, services the there's always there. good there's services, there. services yeah 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 if you got to be homeless somewhere Right. Well, but that's, that's the thing. It's an exceptionally liberal town. It's yeah. it's the People's Republic of Santa Monica, and so they know it's a safe haven for them. Right. Yeah. But but the thing. But you see here, there's no services. So there's right. no. So the, and the thing is, really, if you think about this, the services should probably be distributed, you know, throughout the county, so that instead of getting concentrations of people here and there. You know, you have you have people distributed in the inverse or some way proportional to the population. The problem is, is you got NIMBYism where, I mean, who wants it, right? I don't want it. You don't want it. You know, do you necessarily? You don't want to deal with people crapping in your, uh, you know, in your. We got no place or, else to crap. <laughs> there lies the problem. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You have to like, you got to figure out some way to distribute services countywide. And the thing about having services, for example, in. Uh, in Van Nuys, there are uh, some great services available, but just because you're homeless doesn't mean you know that these services exist or how to use them. They know they exist. What really happens? I found is out. That, <laughs> what What really happens is that the government, you know, if if you smoke cigarettes, if you smoke weed, if you drink, you know, then all of a sudden you are disqualified from qual for from having these disqualified from qualifying. <laughs> but no, from getting to access to these services, if you you know, break these cardinal rules, then you won't get them. Here's another great one because I just, uh, a friend of mine was just experiencing. Uh, if you're on general relief, you could only stay on it nine months. At the end of nine months, they, they kick you off, and three months later, you can reapply. However, they have some wonderful pilot programs to help people, but they're nine months behind in processing the requests. So if you go on general relief and you sign up for these programs, at the end of the nine months, just as you are about to receive whatever the service is, it stops. Because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just totally bizarre. Yeah, yeah that happens. Yeah, I, I, and then you got to stop. You know, I mean, it's like here we have this thing to help you get back on your feet. Oh, I'm sorry, we're nine months behind, and so this thing that was going to help you get a job or help you do whatever it is. Go. Yeah, it's, you start well, all over again. It, it, you know, and this is, by the way, so this is the milieu of Los Angeles in which you know crime reporting thrives, right? Because uh, you know you have, I mean, all these societal issues we talked about. Sorry, Frank, this is a no milieu zone. <laughs> can't use uh, can't use intelligent words here. Uh, okay, all right. Well, this, this is the uh, this is the dirt in, uh, that grows the seeds of of you know these problems that become true crime stories. Because it's such a, we live in such a vast, uh, pl you know, county that's full of people and million stories in the naked city sort of thing, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, yeah, there we go. I mean, this is this is why we, I think I do what I do. I, I started as a newspaper guy, 
and um, you know, a covered crime, uh, and you know, just writing about shootings and stabbings and assaults and robberies and now it's just in one day. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, but you know, back in the in the 90, early '90s and the late '80s. You know, L.A. County had this huge crime wave. Uh, there was a time when I was covering three and four murders a day. I mean, I'd go go into the office like, who got killed overnight? Boom, go there, and then go to the next one and go to the next one. I mean, you'd do that. I had a, I remember the city editor at the Herald Examiner when I first started. On Friday and Saturday nights, he'd have me go over to the wire machine. They had a, like a ticker tape type of thing. Yeah. And he'd pull the uh, paper yeah. wire, and he'd say, well, go check the wire. All right, Chuck, what's, what do you need? Well, I want to see how many bodies are piling up. You know, you, you go pull this thing, you know, there'd be 10, 12 murders, just, you know, like that, and uh, all over. Well, we had a fellow on, a former U.S. Marshal, and he was saying, people forget, you know, we have like a bombing, we, you know, just freak out. It's just, people, don't people remember the 70s? We had bombings almost every day. So we forget, you know, short-term memory loss. We, I think, well, I think we, we live in a society that wants to be safe, right? Everybody wants to be safe. You you watch that movie, the Jedgar Hoover movie with uh, Leo, yeah. and it, it starts out with uh, you know the bombing of the the guy who's the I think he's the Attorney General of the United States. They bomb his house. Yeah, and you know if you think about it, if that happened today, that would be this horrific. Uh, oh my God, what's the world coming to? Story, and yet you know this kind of stuff happened for years. And you're, Ted Kaczynski, he was uh. sending bombs in the mail for God's sake. Yes. Yeah. We just we want to mail be... bombs are fascinating. Hey, thirty seven. <laughs> they really mail, are. Mail bombs are much better. Mail bomb. I mean, I know mail bomb cases because I, I did a book with the postal inspectors. Oh, and oh, they're the ones who, who caught Kaczynski. Yeah, and people don't know what the U.S. postal inspectors do. You think they think they're mail delivery guys or something? Well, they actually have a lab better than the FBI's. You know, you know how they developed that lab was chasing pornographers. And, well, did they catch any? <laughs> <laughs> Those pornographers can run pretty fast. <laughs> that, that, but, in the, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, that was their, uh, the postal inspectors were all about stopping the trade of pornography. Oh, boy. Well, you know, the, uh, one of the, wanted to do a book on this, but there was no one murdered, so they didn't care. Uh, there was a guy committing the most horrible crimes all over the world, millions of dollars. They would target elderly people who had just lost a spouse. So there was money yeah, there. The worst kind of deal. And then they would go in and be friends on the phone with them. Hey, Burl, that goes back to the movie Paper Moon. Yeah. Selling Bibles. Exactly. Yeah. So what they were doing is they were selling them uh, foreign lottery tickets, which is illegal anyway, and then tell them that they'd won. But tell you what, sign this paper, we'll just keep buying you more tickets. And the paper they sent was a power of attorney forms. And they would take all their money Millions and millions of dollars, uh, and the guy got, I think, 18 months was all they could get him on a mail fraud. Horrible. Yeah. Frank, it, it, nice you came in. It Thank was you, a Howard. pleasure to have you here. I uh, love being here. Please come back sooner than later, and sooner than later. And sooner than later. We can talk more about rock and roll. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to do that. Hey, Burl. What? What's next? I believe it's magic. Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence Live for the Lightning of Lounge at allradiolive.com.